I'm going to take this occasion, the first sermon I'm delivering as a pastor elder to Mountain Reformed Baptist Church, to give you a very important message. These last four years have been eye-opening to me, and especially the last year of this pandemic. I feel a little bit like the Apostle Paul. On the road to Damascus, Jesus had stuck, drunk, and blind. But when Ananias went and placed his hands on Saul in Acts 9.18, it says that immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And that's how I, a little bit how I feel the scales have fallen from my eyes. Now, I'm not politically naive. I actually follow the goings-on in the world very carefully. And I do not immediately assume that those in power over me necessarily have my best interests in mind. But what has been shown to me these last four years is this. Everyone, with very few exceptions, is lying to you. Everyone in any kind of power or authority or in charge of some important industry is lying to you. Do you trust Apple to tell you the truth? Do you trust Google? Most Americans get their news off of Facebook. Do you trust Facebook? How about Twitter? (laughs) Twitter, they wouldn't lie to you, would they? You trust that they're an honest broker in what they present to you. Don't. They're lying to you. How about the news media? How about CBS and ABC? NBC? MSNBC? CNN? Fox News? Do you trust those people? Don't. They all have an agenda. They're all telling you their own version of the news, and it's not the truth. Maybe they're not lying all the time or about the same things, but they're all lying to you. How about the medical establishment? And Debbie, this is not, I love. (laughs) But how about it? Um, Dr. Fauci, when he tells you early in the pandemic, masks don't do any good, when you're told later on that you have to wear a mask, And now, two masks? Or three masks? What is this? Who is telling us these things? How about the World Health Organization? Do you trust them when they said last year that you couldn't catch this, it was not transmittable, and then it wouldn't come to the United States? How about the Center for Disease Control? They all say whatever is convenient at the time. Now, what about politicians? Um our elected officials. Are you kidding? With rare exceptions, they are utterly void of the truth. How about our judicial system? Did that open your eyes? Our judges? Can you at least trust them? Oh, I'm sorry. You don't have standing. You can't, we can't try this. We can't see evidence. You don't have standing. Well, surely we can trust our clergy I mean, ministers of God would not mislead you, would they? 
Well, think about the ministers of God who are in the spotlight, and do they mislead you? Now, now that you've ordained me, I will tell you this. I will never knowingly say anything but the truth to you in person or from this pulpit. But the word is knowingly. I can be wrong, and I expect you good Bereans out there to search the scriptures and make sure that I am not misled, because I can be. When I was back east for the holidays this fall, I heard a sermon by a pastor that I really appreciate. Uh, don't get me wrong. I really, really appreciate him. He's one of the favorite people for me to sit under his teaching. He's a nice guy, a Navy veteran. And this sermon was, Would you murmur against God's anointed one? And it was in the aftermath of the certification of our last election. And he knew that many were unhappy with the election. And he said, would you murmur against God's anointed one? And when we got back, it's a long way from this church to my daughter's house, when we got back, we had a long discussion about this. Because I was not sure where I fell down on this. Now, we all know that God puts and appoints those in power over us. That is said throughout the word. Romans 13.1. Now I, as Bill will uh, attest, now we get into scripture. Romans 13.1. And anytime anybody has problem with authority, Romans 13.1 comes up. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. So we have, we have this. Uh, God puts them over us, and he is a servant for our good. But is this a one-off? Is Paul giving the Romans a message who are living under uh, Caesar that if they don't want to get in trouble, they should obey their leader? Or is it a blanket statement that we should obey all our leaders no matter who they are? Daniel 4.17 The sentence is by the decree of watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Now, some obvious questions about God appointing and removing king, kings and authorities. He does not always drive a king mad, as he did in the case of Saul. They do not always end up eating dirt and grass and then thereby be removed from their position. If God did not use men as an instrument to remove unjust rulers, we would be British subjects. 
If men were not authorized by God to remove unjust rulers, Hitler would have ruled Europe for most of our last century, putting to death the rest of the European Jews. Just because God appoints our rulers, it does not mean necessarily that it was meant for our good either. Sometimes it's meant for our judgment. Sometimes you get a David. Sometimes you get a Saul. That brings us to last November's election, but no, it doesn't, because I'm really not at this point going to be talking about anything like that. It's not for me to tell anybody what I think of elected officials, but let's hear what God thinks about the people that are put in authority over us. This will all be God's word. It will not be me. It used to be that there was a universal admiration for the medical community. There was a time when the Centers for Disease Control was concerned about diseases. When the World Health Organization was worried about the health of the world. But now our medical establishments have given that up for hot new things. Instead of dealing in diseases, they've gone into social engineering to a large degree. They are pushing the idea that there are multiple genders, maybe even hundreds of genders. Without telling you what I think about this satanic madness, I'll go instead to Genesis 5.12. Genesis 5.12 is the creation story. 5.2, sorry, thank you. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, something that I think people miss all the time when they're talking about Christianity being a male-centered, a patriarchal religion, is how clear the Bible tells us that he created male and female in his image. Male and female, he created them. The medical establishment of today wants you to believe a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. Now, this was unheard of, what, 20 years ago? And all of a sudden, if you do not believe it, you are wrong because they are right. Deuteronomy 25, 5 says, A woman shall not put on a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So if you believe the word of God, this is not something that should be being pushed in our, in our world. They now say, after hundreds of years of saying that homosexuality is a mental disease, they're now pushing through movies and songs and gray pride parades, homosexuality as something to be celebrated. But God says in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, 
men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and what else is, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swinders will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is also the medical community that's the biggest pusher of abortion. Once upon a time, the doctors took a, an oath. It was called the Hippocratic Oath. And its tenet was first, do no harm. Now it seems to be the hypocritical oath. They claim a fetus is just a bunch of cells. They say abortion is necessary for the mental health of the mother. Some say abortion should be legal up to the day of birth. And some ethicists, and this is what they're called, ethicists, that I've read, one from Australia, believes you should have the right until your baby is four to decide whether or not they live. I'm, we need a little break-in period here. Just four years, not working out, mental health of the parents. I, I've had some four-year-olds. I've had three four-year-olds and. I can tell you that sometimes they test the mental health of the parents. But how can they say these things? They can say these things because, as Romans one twenty five says, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In Jeremiah one to five, and we use this verse all the time, but God is speaking to the prophet and says, Before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. We don't just exist when we're formed in our mother's womb. God knows us from eternity past, from all the foundations of the world. He knew Jeremiah before he formed him in the womb. Understand that basically you've always been a person. When God gave the Israelites the land of Canaan, among the things he told them to do was, I'm going to get this one right for once, Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18. And he says, But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites... And the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all the abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. And what were these people doing? Other places, God tells them to tear down the altars on the high places. The high places were where... The Canaanites would worship, and they weren't always in high places. There were high places set up in valleys. It was just the name given to them. Jeremiah 19.5 says, 
I'll start with four. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offering units to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come to my mind, nor did it come to my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall, shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Deuteronomy 12 through 29 through 31 says, I think I have the wrong verse there, but it talks about do not burn your sons or your daughters. God hates human sacrifice, especially those of your sons or your daughters. Abortion is a child sacrifice by another name. Sacrificing a baby for conveniences or finances is still child sacrifice. Abortion is never for the good, even if it's for the life of the mother. It's still not for the good. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Do not let the medical authorities pretend to do evil in the eyes of God for a higher good, a higher purpose. There is no higher purpose than that found in the word of God. So with that, let's move on to the law. We've had an interesting time with the law and lawyers, and we know they're all looking out for you, right? Well, they're looking out for someone. If I can say that there seems to be two standards of justice in this country, that lady justice is not only peeking beneath her blindfold but has her thumb on the scale, will that be murmuring against the anointed ones of God? Well, Jesus tells us a story in Luke 18, 1 through 8, and very conveniently, <clears throat> cutting right to the chase, it's called the parable of the unjust judge. Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Another instance of God's thoughts on justice is in 1 Samuel 8. And it says, 
Samuel is old now. 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 3. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Samuel was a just judge. He was a prophet. He was a prophet and a judge. And, and when he became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. God instituted the judges to lead and judge the nation, and Samuel was faithful to his charges. You would expect his sons to learn and follow in Samuel's example, but they did not. They went for dishonest gain. They accepted bribes. They perverted justice. Sounds like today, doesn't it? This brings us to God appointing rulers. It seems the elders of Israel did not like unjust judges. They did not, not like Joel. They did not like Abijah. And they asked Samuel to give them a king. And it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. And then God tells them the, what the king is going to do. Because God knows the end from the beginning. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of your people, but according to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up and out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the way of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before the chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, you can be cynical and say, God went and got the worst man to be king over Israel, just to show them. But I'm here to tell you that I think God found the best 
man in the kingdom to be their king. God didn't need to choose the worst person because God knows man's heart. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. This is chapter 9, just over, verse 1. Son of Zeror, son of Bechareth, son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of his people. God chose them for them a king who looked like a king, who was head and shoulders above his people. But God knew Saul's heart, and he knew that Saul was corrupt. So God replaced Saul's anointing and anointed David king. 3,000 years later, we still talk about what a wonderful king King David was. He was the light of Israel. They still talk about King David. And our Lord Jesus came through David's line. God called him a man after God's own heart. Truly, he must have been the best God could find to lead Israel. And frankly, once again, I think they did. But David was found to be an adulterer and a murderer. He wanted to build a temple for God, but was rejected because he had too much blood on his hands. So it fell to his son Solomon, called the wisest man of his time to build a temple, but eventually Solomon was led astray by his foreign wives, and it's widely believed Solomon died estranged from God. Apostasied. Now, I was a little surprised that medical professionals would be false, unreliable liars. I was much less so about lawyers and judges, and not at all surprised about politicians and rulers, but now we come to God's appointed ministers. God instituted the Levitic priesthood. He personally chose them. He set the priests apart. He gave them one job to do. He fed them. He set them apart to spiritually lead his people. Let's see how that worked out. Turn to Matthew 27, 32 through 42. In another sermon, this was pointed out by the same pastor that I'm wondering about in this sermon, but he pointed us to Matthew 27, 32 through 42. And I want you to really consider this. This is at the crucifixion. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down, and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also... 
the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Think about that. They knew and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. The priests who were supposed to be paving the way for the Messiah instead knew he was the Messiah and mocked him as he died. He wasn't going to let the Messiah spoil their racket. He saved others. And so here's how I know they knew who he was. Mark 1, 40 through 45. And a leper came to him, Jesus, imploring him and and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. He sent the cleansed leper to the priest. Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is it easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when this crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. In Mark 5, 35 through 43, and it says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. This is the ruler of the synagogue. Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion and people weeping and wailing loudly. And and when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. People back in this day knew a dead person when they saw it. Probably a lot better than we know a dead person when we see one. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. Ruler of the synagogue, I have more. But you know what? We don't need more, and I've already preached more than I usually preach. What I was reading to you out of the 37 miracles that Jesus did, 13 of them were directly done to the priests or the scribes or the Pharisees. 
Oh, I do need one more. I need to do one more. John 11, 17 through 46. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in a tomb four days. Skipping ahead, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, who was a good, not only a good Jew, but a good Christian, said, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives, believes in me, shall never die. And so Jesus went, and he called Lazarus out of the tomb. That was not done in front of the Pharisees or the scribes, but the Pharisees knew about it. And how do I know that? Because we go to, and they not only knew about it, but they knew what had happened, they believed it. Chapter 12 of John, verse 9, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They knew, they believed, and they didn't care. So much for what uh, God thinks of human kings and people in authority, for our rulers and doctors and religious leaders, So what are we to think of the concept of murmuring against the anointed one of God? Because I still haven't gotten there, and I still haven't worked that completely through my mind. When the Israelites were held in slavery in Egypt, was that ordained by God? The answer has to be yes. When a hot-headed Egyptian royal by the name of Moses stopped an injustice to an Israelite by by killing him, was that ordained by God? God ordains all that happens, so yes. When Rome occupied the land God had given the Israelites, was that ordained by God? When Rome destroyed Jerusalem in AD 67, was that ordained by God? Were the Christians who spread out across the empire to escape the destruction, or that they in their terror, were going to be the instrument that brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world? I doubt it. When a group of colonial farmers stood against the rulers ordained by God and took on the mightiest army in the world, were they murmuring against the anointed one of God? It says that they're appointed and anointed by God. Or were they God's instrument for bringing about a better world? When Germany conquered the entire European continent and were poised to take over the world, one man on a tiny island, 20 miles from the coast that they controlled, stood nearly alone against them. Was Winston Churchill murmuring against God's anointed conqueror, Adolf Hitler? You bet he was. So how does one know if one is a murmurer or God's chosen instrument? It's an honest question. I really really mean that. A lot of Americans believe something sinister happened this fall. Time magazine of all organizations came out with a story on Thursday about 
how a cabal, that was their own word, of Silicon Valley billionaires, tech oligarchs, political operators, and others conspired, that was their word, to save the election, that was their word, to fortify the election by illegal means. Did God ordain an unjust outcome? Why? Did he ordain an unjust outcome so that justice will prevail? Knowing that God is just, the answer must be yes. But if Christians are not to murmur against God's appointed one, who's going to speak out against abortion or infanticide or the transgender agenda or homosexuality? or communism, or anything that is pushed upon the country that is contrary to God's love. If sincere, prayerful Christians are not allowed to stand against sinful policy, who will? Lord, we will take to heart that you want us to pray earnestly for justice.